are elite. For everything you need to know about Mercedes Monet's AEW debut, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Who's Alex Nudman? <laughs> How did you find that? Do me research, friend. Oh my god! Have you ever had this thing where people like don't eat with your left hand? So I was eating and with my left hand because that's how I've been trained because I went to school. And you know, I'm eating with my left hand, fork in the left hand, knife in the right, and the father is just staring daggers at me. And I'm like, Uncle, everything okay? He's like, Artif, stop eating with your left hand. He's like, Why, Uncle? He's like, You must never eat with your left hand. I said, Why, Uncle? What's what's wrong with eating with your left hand? So you shouldn't eat with your left hand because you wipe your bum with your left hand. So don't eat with your left hand. I'm like, uncle, you ain't gonna like what I do with my right hand, seriously. You're not, <laughs> that's, you're not gonna like that at all. Atif Nawaz, how are you doing? I'm great, Tom. I'm very, very well. How are you? I'm all good. I need to know, though, wh- why were you thrown in a pool in your suit the other day? What have you done? I did uh, see. So I did make. I did imply that I was thrown into a suit, uh, thrown into the uh, a pool with my suit. When the the real truth would be that I I fell into a pool with my suit on. I just, you know, I I like to evoke those wrestling stories. Like you know, you hear all these amazing wrestling stories of like you know uh, people falling into Vince McMahon's pool in his house. Uh, <laughs> and I thought if I gotta fall into a suit, I'd like to live in that fantasy world. Uh, but the truth is, I was just trying to. I spotted some. You know, some beautiful uh, women by the pool, and I was kind of trying to do this slow motion, cool walk by the pool, and I'm dressed up quite nicely. I'm going to this formal event, and uh, as I as I walk towards the pool, and you know, give this kind of sideways glance, kind of you know, one of those ones. Uh, yeah, it was it was very sexy until I, I missed my step and walked directly into the pool. <laughs> I'm not Jesus, so I couldn't walk across it. I just, I just fell straight into it in my suit. I literally just dipped in slow motion into a pool. Uh, it was quite the visual. Yeah. What was the reaction when you climbed out? Everybody was really nice about it. They were overly like. If anything, I would have felt less conscious if more people had just laughed it off. But more, everybody was like, "Oh my god, is this guy okay? Like, is he crazy? Has he got some deep rooted emotional problems? Like, what's what's going on?" Uh, no, I, I was fine, mate. I was, I, I, everybody was quite nice about it. I was a bit embarrassed. The big concern for me would be having my phone on me. Did you have your phone in your pocket? Um, I did. Uh, luckily, it was in my jacket pocket, and it's waterproof resistant something. I don't know, whatever. But it's functioning. I mean, it, it seems to be still be working. So it worked out. I did have some very wet euros in my pocket, but that's okay. You know, like you know, there was a chap at a petrol station who didn't mind taking them. So it was fine. <laughs> is it, is this, does it say something about where we're at as people that if that was, if that was me in your shoes, uh, slipping slowly into the pool, my first thought would be, I need to get my phone out of my pocket. I need to throw my phone to safety because that's the bit that would terrify me the most. Not the potential humiliation of landing in the pool, but I don't want my phone to get wrecked. It's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, I think 
I think I I didn't think like that at the time. I just kind of I just kind of, well, of course you fell into a pool, you moron. I just kind of <laughs> you know I just I just kind of accepted that this was a uh, you know just go gracefully just sink into the water is fine. Um, like Skylar in Breaking Bad, you know, she just walks into the water and she doesn't even think about it. I felt a bit like that. And oddly enough, it was these weird pop culture references that were going through my mind um, when when it was all going down. So yeah. You say I, you're a moron, but you're you're actually a, an incredibly talented moron, if nothing else. Like like this is what I'm really excited to talk to you about, because like you are uh, a stand-up comedian who has been doing his thing for a good few years now. You are a a cricket broadcaster for the Test Match Special, and you're a wrestling fan. Like there's there's yeah. so much to, to to dig into among many other things as well. But we're we're here because I feel like you don't get enough of an outlet to talk about your love of wrestling, and I get that because whenever I've heard you do interviews. Um, you will get a wrestling reference in. So I feel like it's a part of you that is sort of bursting through the pockets and we want to open it wide today. Basically. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I really, I've, I've loved wrestling since I was seven years old. Um, and, you know, like every wrestling fan, I kind of go through phases where I'm not super plugged into it, but I've, it's always been there. I've never missed a WrestleMania. Um, I've never missed a, a Rumble. Um, have I? I think I missed a couple of rumbles in the nineties when when I, I my family couldn't afford Sky, um, but other than that, like I've just you know I've I love wrestling and the thing is you it's very difficult to talk about wrestling with people who don't know or like wrestling, so but I try and do it like I I think there's these wonderful anachronisms in wrestling and I like to bring that into my work particularly in cricket commentary like you know. It's it's really fun to say things like, you know, uh, England are on top there. They are all over Pakistan like a cheap suit. And, you know, uh, and that's right out of right out of uh, a, a wrestling thing. I mean, it's this kind of thing that Jim Ross would say back in the day. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he still says it. Uh, but I yeah, I just think and people really like these things as well. You know, they really like. these things. Yeah, I mean, I love wrestling, man. And uh, I don't like to uh, like. Um, sugarcoat it or pretend it or say like oh no no it's just it's for it's for my nephew or oh no it's for no i really like it i, I really enjoy it and that's why it's really cool for me to be honest because i've loved cultaholic i've been literally a day one cultaholic uh a follower um i was there from that weird promo where the clothes came off and they were a bit like it was just yeah i was there for that i uh you know i obviously followed uh wild culture wrestling before that still see some of the videos from time to time but i love cultaholic there's a few other channels i really like and like my week isn't complete without a top 10 list uh or a news video all that kind of stuff from you guys so i really i really love it you know all of it we love you too sir and today you and i are going to be unapologetic wrestling fans for the next hour That's what we're going to do. And you're going to pick three wrestling matches to watch while stranded on a metaphorical desert island. What would you like your first match to be, Atu? Uh, and by the way, it doesn't have to be a metaphorical desert island for me. I mean, last year I spent like three months in a bio bubble. Uh, so I couldn't leave this hotel in Southampton that we, we were kind of placed in during the England-Pakistan. Really? So you spent three, yeah, yeah. Months, three months in the bio bubble? Well, okay, three months slight exaggeration, but I was there for quite a while. Uh, like I had, months. Yeah, but it was it was it was a long time. I, I, I did at least twenty eight days in one place, and then ten days in the other place uh, in in the other hotel. So you literally you can't go anywhere. You watch the cricket, you talk about the cricket, you go back to your room. You can eat with and eat at a distance from everybody else. You can go to the bar and be at a distance from everybody else, and then you go back to your room. So what would I do? I'd watch wrestling, you know. Um, and I'll tell you what my first match ever is, right? And, and, and it's interesting that we're talking about cricket because my love for wrestling is kind of inexplic- inexplicably tied into my love for cricket because it happened at the same time. You know, uh, I remember vividly the year was 1992. And 1992 was a big year for uh, wrestling in my life. And it was a huge year for uh, cricket as well. You know, I'm uh, of Pakistani origin. So my team is Pakistan. And in, in 1992, Pakistan won the Cricket World Cup, and it was huge. And up until that moment, I didn't really understand what cricket was. I certainly didn't have a concept of what countries were, but I I knew that, oh, my, there's something about this team. I just love it. It was the color. It was the color of green, and it was like the way they played. I was like, yes, this is my team. Similarly, uh, in, in 1992, 
uh, I, I watched SummerSlam like everybody else in England, right? And I watched that Bulldog Bret Hart match, and you know everybody was cheering for Bulldog, and you know yeah, Bulldog was very cool, obviously. You know, love David Boy Smith, may he rest in peace. But there was something about the pink and black of Bret the Hitman Hart that, as a child, a seven-year-old kid, I look at it and I'm like, yes, that's my guy. That's my guy. Look at him. He looks so cool. That leather jacket, the way he wears it just off his shoulders. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's what I want. Like, that's that's the guy that I want to be. That's the guy that I want to follow. And, and I, my whole, the whole year just progressed. And this is a really long-winded way of telling you my first match, by the way. But I, <laughs> it's I, I, good. It's good. I'm going to build it up to you because it's, it's not Bulldog and Bret Hart. It's not Bulldog and Bret Hart. I love that match. Uh, it, it, I watched the whole year. My first match, this is going to be a surprise to a lot of people, is Bret Hart versus Ric Flair, which was on like a taped Superstars in 92. So in England, we got to see it on um, uh, 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 the Bret Hart VHS video, uh, which I have. Uh, and I think they, they put a highlight, sort of like a shortened version of it on the uh, on the Superstars show that used to come on Sky. And I'll tell you why it was huge for me, Tom. It happened on my birthday, on my eighth Favorite birthday, the 12th, on your birthday. That's perfect. the 12th of October. The 12th of October, 1992 was the day uh, Bret Hart won his first world title. I was already a huge fan and I can't tell you. And the thing is, this is there's no internet out there. There's no fo- like there's no way of knowing. There is no way I could know that Bret Hart is even about to challenge for the world title. Never mind win it because he did it just on a house show. It wasn't on pay per view. It wasn't on a. Uh, a uh, it was like just a taping in, in Saskatchewan. And you know, I turn on my TV. It's like a surprise. It felt like it happened for me. You know, it felt like somebody was like, "Hey, I think it's your birthday, so you made your favorite wrestler the world champion." Yay! And uh, yeah, man, I, I I know it's not the most celebrated match of either wrestler. Uh, I know there's like all sorts of things going on around and uh, Ric Flair is not um, a very in vogue person to talk about right now but uh, for me like I could watch that match over and over again because it will always remind me of what it felt like uh, on my eighth birthday every time I watch it it's my eighth birthday again do you know what I mean that's that's what I love about wrestling is that there are those intrinsic moments that are just hardwired to your life and I love that it was Brett who was one of your favorites winning the title on your birthday. It's perfect. And it's, as you say, it, it connects to your love of cricket. You were drawn by the green for Pakistan. You were drawn by the pink for Bret Hart. Um, with, with that match in particular, whilst it's not celebrated, it's, it's a key point because it's the beginning of what would sort of become the, the new generation of the WWF. And yeah, it was, it, were, you, were, you, were you a fan during that? Because it's a weird era of wrestling to, to watch the new generation. I know, I, I am, man. I know a lot of people have this kind of, oh, it was a dark days and oh my word. But I like Doink the Clown. What's wrong with Doink the Clown? Why does everybody crap on Doink the Clown nowadays? Like, I mean, I don't know what the deal is. I think we like uh, bad guy Doink the Clown. I think it's when Vince went, hey, everybody's cheering him. Let's make him a good guy. And you went, no, you've, you've immediately, no, no. I think that's the bad guy Doink the Clown, I think will always be superior. To the good, like popping balloons with a cigar and stuff like that. That's the that's the dog we all want. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an era that is very much d- dismissed, I do believe. But I, I really like I liked it all of it. Like you don't understand, I was so obsessed with all of it. Like I mean, now in retrospect, it's really easy to think, oh look how good the product was, sort of '97 onwards, or this phase was really good of the golden era and the attitude era, you know, ruthless, whatever. Like I I really reflect on that time and like I really loved watching those matches. I love watching all the jobber matches. You know, Papa Shango, people are always terrible character. I love Papa Shango. It was one of my favorite characters. Like, I really wish they'd given it a proper run. I mean, as a child watching, it was terrifying. There was a, there was a sequence where he just set some, uh, some uh, you know, enhancement talents, feet on fire. Uh, and I was just, I was watching just terror. I don't think I slept that night as a child, you know. And I, but I really loved the character. And, you know, even uh, people talk about the Godfather being his, his best character, I'm sure. Uh, Charles Wright liked The Godfather the most, but for me, uh, Papa Shango was just an exceptional, underrated, underused character. So I mean, everything from that character, that era, you know, the ho- slightly hokey stuff, slightly cheesy stuff. Uh, I-, I I never minded it. I still look back on it quite fondly. Um, I've still got a VHS tape from SummerSlam '93, and when I signed up to the the WWE Network, one of the first things I did was watch SummerSlam '93 again because that was a nostalgic favorite for me you know what i mean so um i like that era i don't I, I think it gets a hard time 
what um what led you to find wrestling in the first place we know that Bret Hart was you was your boy early on but how did you discover it to begin with um a kid in my primary school gave me a choke slam <laughs> that's one way to discover it yeah yeah which, which kid gave you the choke slam uh I don't remember his name I imagine uh, a big lad if he was, yeah, if he was, was going was... out choke slams, he wouldn't have been. He wouldn't have been a, a shrinking violet. No, I remember we were sort of uh, play fighting, but um, I think in my mind I was play fighting in the style of like uh, you know some other cartoon like a He Man or like a Thundercat or like I don't know some kind of weird uh, homoerotic thing that they fed kids at the time. So I, <laughs> I, I mean, we're having this kind of like fight, and then all of a sudden he just like picks me up. What with one hand because he was a big kid and just chucks me on the floor and it really hurt as well. I remember vividly thinking like, "What the hell, man? <laughs> like, what? The, why did you do that?" And uh, and and he did this. I think I think it was like I don't know which wrestler at the time did the choke slam. I don't think it was associated with the Undertaker at the it time. Might have been Sid Justice at that point, maybe. Uh, possibly, yeah. It might yeah. have been Sid Justice. Um, I. Yeah, I, I I remember he did that. I remember he the same kid a few weeks later. Um, did he used to, I don't know if you remember Crush. Crush oh, yeah, had his finishing crush, move. Yeah. His his finishing move was where he just kind of squeeze someone's head. So you know, and and like this kid would do that. So you know, like I was into the performative acts aspect of wrestling immediately. So I'm like, oh, we're performing, but no, this guy's like, I'm gonna crush your head. And uh, yeah, it was yeah. I just remember thinking like, damn. Like, because he did it. Obviously, this is way before the "Don't Try Me at Home" stuff got prominent. But uh, yeah, it was the it was the crushing of the head thing, and I was like, "Oh God, that's awful! What's what has this happened?" And then, you know, we didn't have a lot of channels at the time, but like on one of them, you had wrestling, and it it's quite it's quite striking the first time you see it. You know, on uh, on TV, I think nowadays we get live in a world of sensory overload. If you go back to the early 90s, like watching wrestling was like, you know, you stepped into the colored world of the Wizard of Oz. It's crazy. So, um, yeah, I really I, I immediately just I couldn't tell you. the. I think the first thing I ever saw was like uh, the ultimate warrior uh, against Rick Rude and some kind of recap show uh, in England. But then I used to live on WWF Mania and Livewire and everything Todd Pettengill related. I was very excited to see him back recently uh but it wasn't it wasn't that great anyway maybe nostalgia is better in your mind <laughs> oh it's we do uh we do the classic raw review here uh on the podcast feed and so we're watching we're going through that new generation era um and todd pettingill is it, he's a unique customer because i think he's genuinely one of the at that period of time he's one of the best but there's every so every so often we think like Vince McMahon just tells him to be cool. Um, uh -huh. The one we watched the other week was he starts the in your house report by going, "Hey dudes and dudettes," and he says it without a shred of irony. And I swear to God, like three parts of me died, and everything that could curl curled back in on itself. Um, and I think the penis dropped off. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> hard to tell. But it was. But it was. It was a fact that it was just. Unironically, stuff like that, but away from that, and to see him back recently doing In Your House again for NXT, oh, it was a deep joy. It was a deep yeah. spice of nostalgia. But did you? Did anybody in your family get into wrestling as well? Was it just yourself? No, it was just a solo endeavor for me. Um, so I'm, I'm like, a, I'm not an only child, but I'm like a late in life child. I've got like an older brother who's got 16 years on me, and an older sister who's got 18 years old on on me. So they don't like they've never really taken an interest or they'll vaguely be like, oh, so who's this and who's that? And, you know, never like disrespectful about it or anything like that or never like judgy about it, but they never, uh, they never got into it. Uh, there was a while, for a while, my nephew got really into it. Uh, nephew's 15 now. And when he was sort of five, I got him into wrestling a little bit. I'd take him to the shows. Um, we even went to meet CM Punk at Hamley's. No, it wasn't Hamley's. Was it Hamley's? It was Hamley's, I think it was. Oh, it was Harrods. Sorry, Harrods in London. So I told my nephew to me, he was a huge fan. So we, we went over there and uh, he got to meet him and he was really happy. But then eventually he kind of lost uh, interest in modern wrestling. And um, now he only watches cricket. But that's cool because I can introduce him to people like Jimmy Anderson as well. So, you know. There you go. You can cool. use connections again there to be the, to be the cool <laughs> uncle. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, sadly, the wrestling thing left him. But but I discovered there's like a whole group of people, uh, you know, my age roughly who really like wrestling. So you know, I'm I'm on I'm on a WhatsApp group that's constantly um, pinging wrestling related stuff and you know wrestling related videos and concepts and ideas and fantasy booking and retrospective debates and you know it's it's like there's a whole youtube channel just living on my uh on my whatsapp and uh, I, I love sort of dipping in and out there but you know it's a it's all of a sudden it's a really exciting time for wrestling again in the present so um i'm sure we'll talk about that when we talk about the next match you do a lot of stuff through uh the bbc and yeah. you do a lot of stuff on the comedy circuit as well is there anybody that we would be surprised to find out is a big wrestling fan um Oof, who would surprise you? Oh, well, there's a, a comedian called uh, Jamali Maddox um, who does a lot of stuff in well in Europe and America. He's like an international name now, right? After Taskmaster and things like that. He loves wrestling. He's really into it. Um, I remember we at the Edinburgh Fringe, we'd be there. And at the Edinburgh Fringe, nobody talks about anything other than comedy because it's like, you know, it's it's like a battlefield, you know, uh, but we'll randomly be sitting in the bar of some venue and we'll just end up talking about wrestling for a couple of hours. And, you know, it's really uh, Jamali Maddox is really into it. I, th- I don't know who else would surprise you per se, but I do keep bumping into people who like wrestling or they'll do a wrestling reference and you kind of look at each other and then you do the other reference and you look, you look at each other, and you're like, you know, we're part of that with you. OK, you and me. Yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we all we all we all we all know each other when we see each other. But yeah, off the top of my head, I can't think of it. But Jamali Maddox is the one that surprised me initially. And basically every every American comedian that comes to the UK seems to like wrestling or at least be overtly aware of it. I think there were people like Patrice O'Neill, comedians in America, who made it very cool to like wrestling, and Bill Burr liked it as well. So um I think Bill Bird did the Steve Austin podcast a couple of years ago. And, you know, since then, a lot of these comics have seen overlaps between the wrestlers and their lifestyle because it's very similar. Yeah, other than the bumps, obviously, um, you kind of, you travel, you do a gig, you go to a hotel, you travel, you go to a gig, you do a hotel. You know, you do that in sequence. And sometimes, you know, all the same things are there, like, you know, uh, addiction issues and, you know, temptations to do this and you know, all that kind of stuff. So there are a lot of overlaps. I think comics see that. So you'll you'll often find comics who, who are big wrestling fans. You said uh, in an in- interview uh, a year, a few years back, and I'm pretty sure you've said it since, uh, the dream job for you, despite all the stuff that you do, the dream job is head writer for WWE. <laughs> uh, I, I think I was slightly tongue in cheek about it. Um, Were you, you know, Whoa, yeah, but listen, know. I'd love to do it, Tom. I'd love to do it, Tom. Don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. since then, I've come across people like yourself, like Adam Pacitti, like all these guys who know so much and have really informed takes that I can be humble and step back and say, maybe I'm not the right guy for this. Like, maybe there's other people who are better but qualified. You know what? Here's the thing, though, Atif. You're probably the, the more right guy than than any of us. And I'll tell you for why they are so keen to have people that don't, that are like, whilst you are a wrestling fan, like your world is in everything other than that. Like they, they would be more inclined to bring in people from like the, the, the entertainment sector and the comedy sector and other sports sectors than wrestling fans. And I kind of get it why they wouldn't want to bring certain smelly wrestling fans into the writing room. I totally get it. Myself included there. Smelled quite nice today, but that's beside the point. I, I totally get it. They would want people with, with um, a field of vision that goes outside of wrestling. So I would say, arguably, you, you, you say, oh, I don't think I'd be qualified. I think you'd probably be more qualified than we would. Well, I don't know. I think I, I don't know about qualified in that case. I guess more sort of with the weird kind of um, parameters they have a little bit more desirable for that role but like i mean look i'd love to i'd love to do that i think i do have a flair for storytelling i mean i've written tv shows um you know i've written on tv shows and i've created shows so i mean i've, I've got that that skill set but uh it is a really really specialist role and the more insight we get like now Tom, i mean, we live in a world where we have unprecedented insight into wrestling with all of these podcasts and wrestlers and you know behind the scenes you got bruce pritchard and i love the bruce pritchard podcast right i can't live without something to wrestle with that's like my favorite thing okay. um and uh i you know the, the level of insight you get 
you really appreciate the struggle, like the hustle to write the thing, to make last minute changes, the lifestyle changes. You know, I, I, I've listened, I love Jim Cornette and, and, and Vince Russo. Uh, you know, I like, uh, I do, I like, I love both of them, despite, you know, a lot of people that oh, I hate Vince Russo. I kind of love both of them. They both help create this amazing ecosystem in the world of wrestling. Um, you know, some people would accuse them of other things, but that's okay. I, I like, you know, I, I like the insight they've given me into this world. And, uh, you know, one of, I, I've been I've been very lucky to get a lot of cool followers on Twitter over the years, Tom. But one of my absolute most proud moments was when I got a follow and a retweet from Jim Cornette. I was like, now I've made it. Now I've made it. You know, now, never mind all these, like the world number one cricket player at the time, or never mind this legendary, that person, or this comedian, or that person, uh, Jim Cornette. And I made my day, so... I yeah I I really respect what they've had to do man to uh, to do it and uh, you know it, like uh, I'd love to do it obviously don't get me wrong but I just I just think I recognize that it's a stretch. <laughs> I hear what you, I do I do hear what you're saying I do hear what you're saying. I want to talk a bit more about stuff that you do do uh, after your second match. Uh, so we have uh, so far uh, we're filling out your DVD. Uh, we have a beauty between Brett, Bret Hart and Ric Flair. It was the night that Bret Hart became the WWE champion for the very first time. Uh, Atif, what would you like your second match to be? Uh, it would be Bret Hart versus... No, I'm kidding. I, I, did, I, did, I, I did have oh, the instinct. Brett. It's Bret Hart all the way down. <laughs> I did have the instinct. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine called Armand just before we, when you uh, very kindly invited me to this podcast. And I was like, I'm going to think of my three favorite matches. He's like, why don't you just say the matches at King of the Ring 93? Because then they all three of them could be Brat matches. Do you know what? And, they, uh, they, were, they were all good matches as well. They were all good matches. They were all good matches. Again, another great pay-per-view and another great example of why, uh, you know, in my opinion, I, of all the workers I ever saw, I think it was just the greatest. I still think he's, you know, like I've never been as invested in the mechanics of a wrestling match as when Brett was doing it. And the only person who evoked that emotion uh, is the guy in my, uh, you know, close to that emotion is the guy in my second match. So the second match, right, is uh, Randy Orton uh, versus um, Batista versus Daniel Bryan. Right, that's uh, WrestleMania night, uh, WrestleMania 30. I don't know if I'm not supposed to number them anymore, but WrestleMania 30 it was. Uh, and uh, it was amazing because I really wanted it. Like, I haven't really wanted anything in wrestling for a long time. You know, you watch anything, oh, this might happen, that might happen. Oh, this guy, ah, uh, yeah, you know, I reckon he'll win and he'll get the IC belt and he'll get this. You watch it quite cynically, you know, you watch it quite like an informed insider, uh, a smart, whatever, right? Uh, you watch it like that. When when that match was happening, Tom, I really wanted Daniel Bryan to win. I wanted it so badly, and you know, it was such an emotional night because you know the Undertaker had just lost, um, and he looked so mortal at the end of that game. Like he, he didn't look like you know this mythical figure anymore. He looked because he was concussed, obviously, so he looked really uh, out of it. And everybody's still recovering from that. And then you got Daniel Bryan uh, coming out, and he's got the. I remember he had like the. Um, those funky fur, fake fur boots on, and uh, that that tape around his wrist, and I was like, oh, it just looks a bit unsightly. Like that's not how I want to see him lifting the belt. But it was just so inspiring. Like the whole, the way he, he everything that built up to that moment, uh, you know, it was just like, and you know, WWE have a have a track record of not giving you, you know, that golden moment. Sometimes, like if you look at you know, Booker T and Triple H, and there's so many countless main events, right, where they just went, ah, no, that's not what we're going to do. They gave it to us for Daniel Bryan. It was just magic. Like, it was the most satisfying conclusion to a WrestleMania for me um, since Mania 10. So, it's yeah. An oh, interesting build-up to that match as well, because there's a big part of you, that a big part of me that even to this day goes, I don't think they wanted to do that. I yeah. don't think they wanted Daniel Bryan anywhere near that, but they got to a point where they go, if he's not, they the fans will probably sandbag the whole night. So yeah. we kind of have to do it. And and it's they they will since say, oh, you know, they'll in interviews and stuff, they've gone, yeah, but was that really what we were gonna do? Sure, are you sure that this wasn't the plan all along? And I'm still going, yeah, I'm pretty sure this wasn't the plan all along. <laughs> but they'll try and sort of retroactively own it as this was the greatest story we ever told, pal. Um, 
but I don't <laughs> think that was the case. Is that, are you of a same of a similar mindset that we that that wasn't what they wanted to do that night? Absolutely, they had no idea. There was never going to happen. They didn't foresee that segment happening where they'd have every world champion that was alive and in proximity standing in a ring, and everybody in the crowd would chant for Daniel Bryan. I mean. When you think about it, you got like Shawn Michaels was there, Bret Hart was there, you know, Mark Henry, uh, you know, Orton, Cena, Triple H, uh, all these huge names are in the ring, right? And everybody's going Daniel Bryan nonstop, like to, to the point where they have to acknowledge it. It's incredible. They did not see that happening. They did not see people getting right behind this guy. I don't even think Daniel Bryan saw people getting behind him uh, in that way. And it was just really cool to see fans like actually informing the booking because they did inform the booking in that way they were like geez what, what do we do we just gotta give it to them and he deserved it he really really deserved it you really felt happy for him he's a cool guy i've enjoyed following him on social media actually because like you know he's a, he seems like a like a cool guy and uh, and when he did his first promo on aew i found it slightly jarring when he swore actually because <laughs> you know he's surprised isn't it yeah, he's like no, but he's like a he's like a cherub boy. He, he doesn't he's not allowed to swear. But yeah, no, it was it was quite it was quite jarring when I saw that. I, I know it was not a televised promo, but even so. But yeah, I love Daniel Bryan. I think he's so cool. I like what he stands for outside of wrestling as well. Um, and um, yeah, I just uh, that match it just made me really happy. And I was a full grown adult by then. You know, I wasn't this eight year old kid. I was like twenty nine, I think, when that happened. So uh, you know, for that managed to make me that happy at that time of the night. It was something ridiculously late as I walked home. I remember I watched it with some friends uh, in Great Portland Street. And um, then I walked back home and I was like, I'm so happy. And like, just for the happiness of that, uh, that match evoked, it's got to be my Desert Island graphs. So you were, you were on your way back from some friend's house. Uh, so where were you sort of life-wise at this point? I just say uh, a, an older man than, than you were when you watched Bret Hart, uh, high as a guy watching Daniel Bryan win the big one. Um, are, we, are we into the comedy world at this point? Are we, are we making headway there? Yeah, I mean, I, I made very slow headway in the comedy world. I, I started stand-up when I was sort of 21. Uh, and I started as sort of... Uh, just to, just to, uh, you know, just for fun, really, because I, I trained to be an actor or I wanted to be an actor. Uh, but I mean, I wasn't getting anything. I famously, I remember my agent telling me at the time, like, oh, you're not going to get a lot of stuff. I'm like, why? He's like, well, you're not quite tall enough to be tall, but you're not short enough to be short. You're not good looking enough to be good looking, but you're not bad looking enough to be a character. You're not fat enough to be fat. You're not thin enough to be thin. So you, and, and you don't look Asian enough to look Asian. And you certainly don't look white enough to look white. So you fall in this awful cross section where people who want to cast stuff aren't going to like you. I, lo I love that honesty. So I remember him telling me that and I thought, oh, this will be funny. I'm going to use that on stage. Yeah. I was going to say, because you, you, you obviously turn, I'll say, what do you do with that information? But, you know, as a, as a stand-up comedian, that becomes fuel, doesn't it? That's, that's it does. fuel for the fire. And, and, it, and it writes 15 minutes of a show pretty much when that happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I was, I started doing stand-up at yeah, 21 and I was pretty ordinary slash awful for, I'd like to, I, I like to think about seven years. So I was very lucky. A lot of great clubs gave me the opportunity to develop my work. I was emceeing at this place called The Alchemist in Clapham Junction for like uh, three years. Every Wednesday and Friday, I'd be emceeing the show there. And that gave me the opportunity to like just, you know, keep learning the craft and developing and to have that stage time to get better, 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 better. And be have access to great comedians as well who give you notes and ideas and things like that. And it was really 2016 where I sort of had my breakthrough year when I did my first really big Edinburgh friend show that got good reviews and stuff. So yeah, I, I, it took me ages to make headway uh, in the comedy world, but it was, it was all bubbling away in the background. I think professionally I was kind of bouncing about when that happened. So, you know, it's not a big stretch to say at that point in my life, it might've been the coolest thing that had happened uh, in that month. Who's Alex Nudman? <laughs> How did you find that? Do me research, friend. Oh my god. Okay. So unbelievable. So when I started doing stand-up comedy, um, I had a job um with like a um a really a high profile tech company. And uh I was worried that the kind of things I wanted to say on stage wouldn't resonate well with this company. So I thought I need I need a pseudonym 
I was quite, I was pretty filthy. I mean, my early inspirations were like, you know, just comics were quite outwardly rude and things like that. And um, I, and it didn't didn't suit me, but I, that's what I went with in the early days. So I decided to call myself Alex Nudeman because um, I'm very fond of being nude. Uh, I, I'm a man and uh, Alex is slightly easier to spell than Atif. So I, I thought, okay, great, we'll go with Alex Newman. So that was my pseudonym when I started doing stand-up comedy, and I thought I'd buried it, but you found it, Tom. <laughs> Somehow you found it. <laughs> you can always say that, uh, you know, that the Atif Nawaz has, has had an incredible career in comedy, but you can always say that Alex Newman, ah, he didn't really cut the mustard yeah. because all the stuff that you you kind of were figuring out, trying new stuff, so it doesn't come back on your, on your other job, on your shoot job, um, it's... Uh, it all falls to Alex Newman. He can deal with it. <laughs> he can deal Dude, with it. Can I, can I just say how unbelievably flattering it is? Because I've been interviewed like um, uh, so many times. Nobody's ever ever brought that up. Really? And, yeah. Nobody's ever nobody's ever really brought up Alex. Not for not for the last five years. Um, you know, and like yeah, it's it's unbelievably flattering that he'd go through the effort to do that level of research on me. Uh, when you can just have a cool Alec Island, I've got to do a background check on you. I, mean, no, I, I really, I, it's just, for, I feel very really special for, for immigration purposes for Cotaholic Island. Everybody gets a background check before they get on the island. <laughs> I'm very familiar with immigration checks, so that's cool. But I, <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> as a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. I'm desperate to know how the how you got involved with Test Match Special, which for those who live outside of England, uh, outside of Britain, don't know. Like it's it's a it's an institution for cricket fans. Is the BBC Test Match Special? Like it's it has an iconic bit of theme music. That the moment I, I must admit, before you and I sat down today, knowing I'm doing this, I'm walking around the office going. Because you just you just do it's there it's it's ingrained in your brain. But how did you come to become go from becoming a cricket fan, uh, falling in love with Pakistan and the green colours to to working as part of Test Match Special? What's the, and and it's and I want to ask as well because so many people get in touch with me who say like I want to try and you know do do more work in the in the entertainment industry in television in radio and whatever and it's always great to hear other perspectives. So how does it how did you get involved, sir? So. I used to do some commentary for a group called Test Match Sofa, which was like um, this like alternative commentary thing. Like if you imagine like Cultaholic watches, it's almost like a watch along. They were doing watch alongs before watch alongs were a thing. And, uh, you know, we, we would do that and you just mess about. And it was just silly and you'd make jokes and be like, you know, you'd swear and it would all be very funny and all that kind of stuff. So I did that for a long time. 
um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it, but it was just, a, it wasn't like a professional thing. I was just doing it for fun. But everybody knew that I loved cricket. Everybody knew that I loved cricket. And slowly, as as my profile increased in the world of comedy, you know, get on TV and people see you all of a sudden, like, who's this guy? What do we know about this guy? People start looking up the Alex Newman days, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, people, you know, I'm getting a bit of notoriety. And uh, Isha Guha, uh, who was at one stage the world number one bowler, a World Cup winner for England, uh, is a really good friend. And she uh, was told by the BBC that they wanted her to do a podcast. Um, and so she called me. And I remember this. I was in Ireland watching Pakistan Island, which was Ireland's first ever test match. I don't, I don't, I don't know why I do these things. But anyway, I was in Malahide watching this test match um, by myself. So I, 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 I'm do, I'm watching the game. I'm back. I'm at the airport. I get this voicemail from Isha, and she's like, "Call me when you can." I call her, and she's like, "Hey, I've been offered this podcast. Uh, give me some ideas and stuff." So I'm giving her some ideas because she's my friend. Why wouldn't I? And she says, "You know what? Why don't you just do this with me?" I said, like, "I can't do a podcast with the BBC." And then I was like, "Yes, I can. Yeah, totally. I'll do a podcast with the BBC. That's cool." Uh, and then we got uh, a third chat called Uncle Sion, and um, the three of us formed what became known as the Dusra, BBC Dusra. That was the podcast. And um, they really liked it. It was really well reviewed. Everybody who listened to really enjoyed it. I mean, I tried to be quite true to my comic self and told jokes, made it quite light and all that kind of stuff. And they really liked it. It was really fresh compared to some of the cricket coverage that was out there at the time. And um, eventually they discovered I'm a long, lifelong fan of Middlesex County Cricket Club. Um, that's my local team and um, county, and I've been watching them my whole life. I've commentated for them as well because they thought of me as a celeb in hashtag in in, in uh, inverted commas. Uh, so they bring me on as like a celebrity, little sex fan to commentate, and I loved it because like you know you get to watch the game for free. You get a free mushroom soup and some free bread and a little bit of uh, biscuits. Like what more do you want from life, right? So I was happy, uh, and then yeah, eventually. Uh, the producer at TMS said to me, um, you know, we'd like you to commentate for us. And I was like, cool, what do you want me to commentate? And he said, uh, the IPL. And I was like, oh, dude, I'm not going to get a visa to India. And he was like, no, 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 we're going to do it from London. And, you know, he explained it to me. And I was like, okay, cool. So we'll, we'll do the IPL from London. Then we did the same thing with the Big Bash. And then eventually they were ready. They were like, right, we want you to make a test match debut. We want you to be on commentary for England versus Pakistan. We think that's quite fitting because you, you know we love Pakistani cricket. You've got that inside there, and uh, you know it'll be your first Test match and it'll be at Southampton. Oh, by the way, you're going to be in a bio bubble for a month, but um, you know that's the way it's got to be. And it was it was incredible, man. Like a bunch of things had to converge for it to happen. Um, and now I feel like the luckiest person in the world. Like if I could go back to my younger self and tell myself that one day I will have this pass. And this pass I will wear around my neck and it will give me access to any cricket match I want in the country for the whole summer. Oh, my goodness. You know I mean, that's like, imagine if money in the bank could be used 30 times a year. Right? <laughs> like, that's how good the feeling is. Like, you're just, you've got a chance to go to see everything as often as you want. And you have the best seat in the house and you've got the most privileged access and people want to talk to you like, some days I feel like I won the lottery, man. It was unbelievable. What a what a gig! Amazing. How was that 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 day calling England Pakistan on commentary? Because as you say, lifelong fan of Pakistan, uh, a, a massive match in the IPL, and it's a big part of the the BBC cricket coverage. Yeah, like, what what goes through your head in the, in the build up to that? I I was uh, doing insane amounts of research. Uh, which were rendered useless almost instantly by Andy Zaltzman because I'd put all these stats together. Andy Zaltzman is uh, another stand-up comedian who's uh, the scorer. I think that's his official title, but he's actually just really funny and contributes really cool things um, to the Test Match special program. So anyway, as I walked in, I had this brown leather notebook, which I thought would look cool as well. It was very imp- imp- important because everybody told me, like, listen, this is a Test Match special. You know, this is like... 45 year old white people like you know you got to make sure you fit in here right like you got to be a bit more look academic and stuff i was like oh, okay well i was like oh, i'm gonna be me i'm not gonna think about that too much but i did buy into the whole like look a little bit so I, you know i put a shirt on like an actual shirt with buttons you know i tucked it into the trousers that i was wearing and i wore shoes like actual shoes 
not trainers, not Yeezys, not any of the fancy trainers I like to wear day to day. I put on shoes, I walk into the room, my leather notebook with build with notes, and Andy Zoltzman hands me the sheet with the, all the information I need anyway. More better formatted than I could ever hope to do in my life. And uh, yeah, it was just, it just, uh, it just made me chuckle. And then I, I remember I'd gone on Mike and Ebony Rainford Brent was with me and I'll forever love her because she made it so easy for me. My first stint, she knew I was a bit nervous and I was, um, you know, it was a big moment for me. And she let, she guided me through it while giving me the space to bask in the moment. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a bit like in wrestling, you know, the insight we get is like the one wrestler calls the action, right? And the other person follows. You have like a, a leader and the other person follows, right? And, and if you're lucky, the person who's guiding you in that match will give you moments to shine, right? Will give you your, your moments to do your spots, so to speak. And Ebony was the perfect dance partner in that moment because she gave me the space to say everything that I needed to, I wanted to. She let my personality come out and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll forever love her for that. And, um, yeah, it was it was an amazing thing, man. I can't even tell you. I felt so privileged and all the love starts pouring in on social media. And I was really universal. Like, I remember just feeling so overwhelmed because like I, I must have had like for me it was a lot it felt like thousands and thousands of tweets it probably wasn't that many but it felt like that and they were all complimentary and um I just went to bed with a big smile on my face and I was really happy and um yeah it was a great day man maybe uh, probably in the top 10 days of my life the first day I did TMS uh, in I want to compare this because I know you spoke to a lot of guys in the wrestling world. You've done uh, a fair few interviews with folks on carpets and stuff. Um, who has been your favorite wrestling star to meet, and who has been your favorite cricket star to meet? Um, uh, a cricket star, very easy. Wasi Makram. He is very funny. He was one of the greatest of all time, obviously arguably the greatest of all time. And uh, I just, I got to hang out with him for a long time um, to the point where we exchange WhatsApp messages now, which blows my mind. Um, but anyway, yeah, him also, I really, I really like Ian Bell and Mark Ramprakash as well. Like from England, they were two of my favorite people to hang out with. It was so much fun. Mark Ramprakash will play table tennis with you all day long and still give you dad energy. Like he's just, like this guy won strictly come dancing. Right. And he's just like the most humble person in the room. He's just such a lovely guy. And um, Ian Bell, it's just, uh, he's just a great, it's just really lovely. I've met, so I've, I've been very lucky, Tom. I like everybody I met in the cricket world. I've never met a guy and thought, huh, what a loser. Like, I've never, I've genuinely never thought that. Uh, I've, I've met just a sequence of lovely people. Um, anyway, wrestling people. Again, I got very lucky. I got to meet a lot of these people doing some of these, like, press events and red carpet events and VIP parties and all these weird things. I remember being most impressed by James Storm. So I remember I met him and Bobby Roode, and Bobby Roode was a bigger star at the time, uh, probably now still is. But uh, I remember James Storm being really funny, really clever, and he did us a magic trick. The camera wasn't on; he was did, he did this magic trick for us anyway. And uh, he was he was he was just he liked to play along, and you know I'm trying to have fun. I'm trying to make it a comedic interview. Like I I, I really enjoyed chatting to Drew McIntyre as well, um, or Drew Galloway as he was at the time, uh, and Bobby Lashley. They were both really lovely, and they made it easy to have that jokey uh, interplay. Uh, but I just remember James Storm being the most entertaining. I just really ran. I should have picked the most famous person. But if I'm really honest, like, no, no, I get Ma it. McIntyre and. Uh, my, when yeah. we had we had James Storm on this show uh, a couple yeah. of years back, and and he's lovely, and yeah. just and I met him at a at a Defiant show about a year before that. Even even then, he was he was a smashing soul. There was a really there was a really lovely story uh, which we talked about on the podcast with him. Um, out of interest, when you spoke to Bobby Lashley, did he genuinely go out into town with the TNA title on or not? Because I feel like he said it as like, yeah, I'll definitely do that. I'll go and get ice cream and and wear the TNA title around around London. Did he actually do it or not? Um, again, mind-blowing that you did that level of research. Um, and, like, I can't believe you went... Like, most people just glance at the Wikipedia page, Tom. You've, like, done a full-on... Uh, like, amateur! Amateur! You should work for... You should work for the, the UK government, man. Like, that level of <laughs> research. Is insane. What are you doing in wrestling? Well, you go save the world, man. Like, anyway... I 
I, uh, yeah, no, I, he, I don't think he did that, but he was really lovely and he was really nice. He let me hold his belt as well uh, and take a photo with it, which was really nice. He's like a good egg. Uh, now, we've got one more match to get to before we do, as well as taking three wrestling matches, you're also allowed to take with you. I like to spring this on people at it. Uh, you're also allowed to take with you a movie, an album, and a luxury item. So when I say to you, you can take a movie with you onto the island, what movie springs to mind? Um, Pulp Fiction, but it's not the one I would take. Oh, wow. Okay. So Pulp Fiction sprung to mind. It comes to mind. It's like if people ask me the question, it's like, oh, it's your favorite movie. I'd say Pulp Fiction. I really like it. Um, I know it's unfashionable to like it now, but I still like it. Um, I, I went to this event a few weeks ago and there was a silent auction and I was really hoping not to win it, but I did win it. I've got this signed poster frame of um, John Travolta signing the poster. I've got it, but like I've got nowhere to put it, but I've got it. Uh, and I paid an extortionate amount for it as well. So if anybody wants it, get in touch. Um, <laughs> but just bring your checkbook. So I do people have checkbooks anymore? Anyway, I, I would say Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That's the film I would take with me. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That's like my all time. Happy movie. Like I, I'm thinking Desert Island, all these things that have in common, but everything I choose is are things that make me happy. So uh, you know, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is such a great movie. If you've not seen it, I highly recommend it. Steve Martin, Michael Caine, uh Frank Oz directed it. It's just comedic genius. Great shout. How about an album? What album would you take? Um, I think the second the uh, second or third Britney album. No, um, I would take even they were both great, great albums. Uh, no. I I, I think I would take The Prodigy, The Fat of the Land. Um, Again. But you'll be thinking of Britney. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's there's a a song on there called Breathe, isn't there? Uh, Yeah, I I, I really love love The Fat of the Land. It's the first CD I ever bought, uh, was The Fat of the Land by The Prodigy. And at the time, um, you know, there's a song on there called Funky Shit. And it was just really cool to hear the word shit in a song. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, that was that age where, oh, my God, he said shit. Oh, did you hear that? He said shit. Oh, my days, man. He said shit. So like, it was, was Fat of the Land that had Firestarter on? Because I'm, I'm all right thinking Fat of the Land's the album with the with the, the scorpion on the front cover. Yes. Yeah. That's the um, one, isn't it? Yeah. It so it had, uh, it had Breathe. It had Smack My Bitch Up. It had Firestarter. It had Minefield. It was just wall-to-wall, just classic track. Diesel Power. Um, that's that diesel power incidentally somehow came bang in line with diesel's reign. I think that album came out in 94, if I'm not wrong. So, yeah, just as diesel was sort of catching on, like, yeah, there was never a, a collaboration effort there. <laughs> that's what he needed. That's what diesel needed was like a WrestleMania entrance where the prodigy performed that and less shit writing, and he would have been <laughs> fine. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the album. Okay, there we go. And how about a luxury item, sir? So something that um, hasn't got to have like it hasn't got to be useful. It can just be an item with some personal uh, significance or some sentimental value. It can be a bit of tech. It can be a gadget or something like that. What would what would spring to mind as a luxury item? Uh, I'd want to. I think I'd want to take something cricket related, but I'm gonna just say my Super Nintendo. Amazing choice. Best game on the yeah. Super Nintendo. Uh, for me, Super Mario World. Good shout! That's a classic. Yeah, I like I like the Mario games. I think Super Mario Three on the NES is probably the best overall Mario game. But Super Mario World is is really fun too. I really love that. So yeah, Mario World felt really special because it's all of a sudden the graphics got like twice as good. Yeah, yeah. and you had an and you could ride a dinosaur in it. I remember my mind was blown when I played. Yeah, it. I was like, I really want to do no no no. Uh, but... Yeah, but I did miss. But I think I think there were things in Mario Three that were better. You know, I think there were things like the Tanuki suit and you know, being turning into a statue and uh, and it was really it's just, it was that jump, right? So Super Mario One and Two doesn't count, right? Because it's not part of the. I mean, it's not really canon. So it was Super Mario One, and then you go to Three, and it was like the most creative engineering ever. Like the ideas just burst. So I really love Super Mario Three. Um, and I, I thought, well, obviously, World looks incredible, but the level of uh, it was like going from iPhone 4 to iPhone 5, right? iPhone 4 was a genuine leap and iPhone 5 was an incremental leap. So that's the way I look at um, 
I don't use an iPhone instead. I don't know why I use that as an analogy, but you, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. That's a good shout. <laughs> I like that a lot. Let's see your third and final match then. I see if we've had Brett versus Flair for the WWF title from back in the day. Uh, and uh, we had uh, our second match, which was, it wasn't, it wasn't anything from King of the Ring and it wasn't another Bret Hart match. Why has it fallen out of my head? Of all the things, yeah. what was your second match? Remind me. <laughs> Uh, triple threat WrestleMania Daniel Bryan. Uh, Bryan yes, Batista yes, at all. He was injured. It was a weird look. The furry boots. He won the title. It was a good day. They should they, they pretended to write it. That's what it was. Your third and final <laughs> match, then, friend. What would you like it to be? So uh, again, I, I thought about this and like you know, honorable mention to CM Punk, whose various of matches I really enjoyed, particularly against John Cena, at Money in the Bank. But I didn't pick that one. Um, I picked Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kazuchika Okada. At Wrestle Kingdom Nine. Wow. So okay, they've had some clashes over the years, but why? Yeah. Uh, Tanahashi Okada from Nine out of all of them. Yeah. That was at, in 2015. So I was I wasn't like I didn't know much about Japanese wrestling. All I knew is what I'd read in a magazine called Power Slam that I used to collect as a kid, right? And uh, shout out to Finlay Martin, what a guy! I I, I love all my wrestling news for many years was Power Slam magazine. It was uh, yes. a deep joy to to pick. I that still. Up. Finn Martin I got very angry near the end, did you find? I found that near the end of the run, he seemed to really hate wrestling. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he, he, he it was it was a thankless endeavor for him, but he was a he was a true wrestling fan because I would email him from time to time uh with like random questions about wrestling. So me and my friends would have these debates like who was the bigger draw, Brett or Sean? And I'd be like, oh, obviously it's Brett, and then it's Sean, and like the only person who can De- you know, definitively tell you the answer for us that might reply is Finley Martin. And he would always reply, He'd always take the time to reply and, and stuff. And I always thought he's a lovely, really, really, really lovely man. And um, you ever find I, I, out on the subject of Power Slam, apologies for interrupting whilst it's in my brain, did you ever find out the identity of stately Wayne Manor? He was uh, no. that was Amer- no. the American columnist who was yeah just had this really kind of acidic column every month, and he went under the pen name Stately Wayne Manor. I just don't know whether we ever found out who he was. Well, it was a better, it's a really good pen name. It was better than Vic Venom, which is what uh, Vince Russo <laughs> almost went as by good as Alex Nudeman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think I might. I might do that. I might start a cricket podcast with a distorted voice and uh, just call myself out of movement yes! and just say controversial things. I, um, oh, we've given it away now. Never mind. I, 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 just, <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about Japanese wrestling other than what I was fed by Power Slam kind of growing up, right? So I vaguely knew who Shinya Hashimoto was, who Kenta Kobashi was. So I vaguely knew about these people because I'd read Power Slam, but I'd never seen them. You don't, you can't see Japanese wrestling in England unless you're like a tape trader. I never got, I never got into tape trading. Um, and yeah, so I think Wrestle Kingdom 9 was the first kind of widely available pay-per-view. I think it was promoted by somebody. It was like um, GWF or somebody, somebody had promoted it in the UK. So you could buy it as a pay-per-view and watch it in England legally. Right. So the first time my friends and I, we sat down to watch a New Japan pay-per-view and uh, Jim Ross was on commentary for it as well. So this is the first time they got Jim Ross to comment, excuse me, to commentate on um, on a on a New Japan pay-per-view. And it just blew our minds. It was the first time we saw Shinsuke Nakamura. It was the first time we saw Kota Ibushi, uh, Kenny Omega, a, a, a much younger Kenny Omega at the time was on the lower undercard at the time. I think he was a junior heavyweight champion, junior weight, junior champion. IWGP Junior, yeah, whatever. Junior so he was like, he's wearing their version of light heavyweight, right? So uh, he had that belt, and you know, uh, Jushin Liger and all these great people. Like, it was really cool. So I, re- I remember I used to get really excited when Jushin Liger would randomly pop onto WCW or WWE TV. Um, and it was, you know, I, I, just to watch that paper was really great fun. And it was really long. Like, it was such a long show. It was like four and a half hours or something. It felt crazy long. And the matches were really absorbing along as well. So we've just seen Shin, uh, Shinsuke Nakamura versus Kota Ibushi. We're like, wow, that might be the best wrestling match we've ever seen. Nothing can top that. Shall we just stop? Shall we just stop? What's the point watching another match? Well, it's the world title match. Okay, fine. What the hell? And as Kazuchika Okada comes out, Hiroshi Tanahashi come out. And they have what, to my memory, is probably the best match I've ever seen. You know, um, I haven't seen... 
uh, all of the Omega Okada matches. I've seen some of them. Um, but like that match was so good. Like it made me really appreciate the craft of wrestling again. Like again, you know, it goes back to Bret Hart. I remember I, all of these things are embedded in my mind. You know, elbow off the top rope, uh, of the middle rope. So elbow off the middle rope, uh, side rush and leg sweep, um, you know, leg drop, uh, elbow drop. Uh, and then the sharpshooter, right? You know his sequence, like his sequence is very clear. So, uh, you know, oh, inverted atomic drop, by the way. I forgot you got an inverted atomic drop. So anyway, like I, I didn't, the, in the middle somewhere, you know, with the attitude era and the Stone Steve Austin and the brawling and all that kind of stuff. I loved all that stuff, don't get me wrong. But I lost interest slash appreciation for the craft of wrestling, wrestling, you know, the actual what's happening in the squids. It became more about the promos and the moments and the title changes and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I never watched a match and appreciated the work in the ring as much as, uh, as I did with um, Tanahashi and Okada. So uh, I would watch that again. That was the first match that really got me into Japanese wrestling. Now I kind of try and follow it reasonably closely. Uh, it's been tough over the pandemic, obviously, but I try and follow it. Um, yeah, and I just think it's it's very cool. They're, they're revolutionaries. They had the idea to make Wrestle Kingdom over two days, way before WrestleMania did it. They've just announced they're going to do it over three days. Uh, I'm waiting for a three-day Wrestle. I'm just waiting for when WrestleMania just becomes a month of the year. You know, that's what I'm waiting for. Well, it can't be far away. Yeah, that would make can't sense. can't be far away. I am so very happy with, the, with the, 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 the decision to make WrestleMania two nights again. Yeah. I'm very happy with that. I, as, as somebody that reports on it, like if I've got the choice between three hours on a Saturday night, three hours on a Sunday night, over seven and a half hours on a Sunday night, I'm going to take the two nights. That'll be fine. I can sleep a little bit on both nights and not have what we used to have this sort of WrestleMania malaise where like you'd be up from midnight till 6 a.m. I remember seeing WrestleMania 34, I think it was. I was at a... Uh, a, a WrestleMania party in Leeds, and I got on a. We'd hosted. We did a wrestling show the, just before it, and then we went to this party. And I, I, my my partner texted me at six thirty in the morning. She was like, "Good morning," to which I just sent her back a picture of my pint, saying, "Morning." <laughs> why? She said, "Why are you still drinking?" I said, "The show hasn't finished yet." Wow. It was wow. Just, just mayhem. I'm so happy. It's two nights. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think most fans are with you as well. I, to be honest with you, I like the one night, three out, one night, four hour tops. Uh, the formula I like that. I think two nights, uh, maybe it's because now I have more obligations and I have to do other things, so it's really hard to take two nights out to watch it. Yeah. Um, but I, I do. I did like that old school idea of like you got to make it onto that card, you don't just get to be on the card, you got to make it on that card, yeah. like you know. Uh, I, I I like that old school idea of like you know only the really really important feuds get their blow offs there or the big match or the big the the big you know like it's a big thing right so um, but yeah I mean also really happy to have two nights of it I don't like that they sort of displaced the NXT show um, the two night mania and um, the Hall of Fame like I think it might be NXT I mean they might do what they did. Uh, this year they might do a two night takeover Wednesday Thursday Hall of Fame Friday WrestleMania night one night two Saturday Sunday it might be another one of those weeks where you just as as my partner says she becomes a widow to wrestling for the week <laughs> my my sleep pattern is buggered and I'm at work all the time but it's not a bad job at all as you say though it's difficult when you have other obligations that mean you don't get to enjoy it as much as you could um, yeah. One of those obligations is you're back on the road touring again. Comedy is back. Yeah. You're back out there. Uh, Atif, tell me one thing that you missed from doing stand-up that you didn't think you would miss. Um, insulting people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't. It's not so much insulting people, right? Like I, I very rarely get hecklers. I think my reputation is that I'm a nice guy and uh, and, and a good storyteller. So this is what people. I think if there's any nice things they say about me, he's a good nice guy, he's a good storyteller. So people buy into my stories. When I'm in a club, they're like, okay, this will be fun. But I do still have that original instinct in me to just, you know, when somebody's being rude or they're just chatting or doing anything that, you know, pisses me off, I'm going 
going in. Like, I'm going to rinse you. Like, this is it. It's happening. I was in Manchester on Sunday uh, at the Frog and Bucket Comedy Club, which is a great club, by the way. So if, you, if you're in Manchester looking for stand-up, it's a great place to go. I uh, There was a lady there. And uh, we had a little, it's very hard to recreate the moment now for you, but we had a little bit of an interplay, in, which resulted in me making fun of her and everybody kind of laughed and it was fine. And after the show, I did sort of, after the show, I always go and make a point of like, listen, are you okay? I was just messing about, it's just a show. And nine out of 10 times, they're fine. And the 10th time, uh, I don't really care as much. So I, I, yeah, I mean, it was really, it was a really lovely feeling when the crowd is with you. You know, when you sit, when you take on one person and the crowd is behind you, again, it's just like wrestling. You're the face. You're worried if you're about to do something heelish as a face, but they're behind you when you do the heel thing. So, you know, that that it's a really good feeling. Like that, I really miss that. I really miss I miss that more than I thought. So it's pretty cool. Uh, where can people go to find out where you're gonna be next? Um okay, so this is where I get to plug myself. Uh Absolutely, I, sir. go for it. Not a euphemism. I if you like on Twitter is a good place because like I used to, I usually pin on Twitter my next my upcoming gigs now i've got a bunch between now and the end of november and then december I, I think i'm going to be on some kind of tour but i don't know that officially yet but yeah i'm going to be all over the place i know i'm going to be in wolverhampton and birmingham and leamington spa manchester glasgow New, newcastle and um edinburgh like, i'm everywhere in the next uh a few months so uh if you want to come down the tickets are available if you go to atifnowas.com slash live that will get you there or just go to twitter man find me on twitter it's there it's all there don't twitter just do twitter i'm gonna get better at plugging myself Tom. that was bad <laughs> That's i fine. can eloquently describe like Bret hart versus rick flair from 92 but i can't tell you how to make me money how bad is that there's links in the description so people can find you in the description as well it's fine Amazing. Now, one final question i always like to end on something a little bit retrospective so uh, a young atif nawaz has taken a choke slam in the playground and as you lie on the ground you uh you 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 appear from the future uh the, the atif we speak to today returns to see his younger self post choke slam what one piece of advice would you like to give yourself then based on what you know now uh, kid don't stress so much your life's gonna be amazing that's nice that's nice that's lovely that is and, and yeah. Alex Nudeman is the way <laughs> forward. <laughs> and think of a better pseudonym. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 